Bible. Our study through Genesis continues this morning. We begin in chapter 42. We do come today to what is the climax of the story of Joseph in Genesis. It's a climax that is quite a long story. It spans four chapters, chapter 42 through 45, four chapters that we want to swallow whole uh, this morning. We'll give some comment to quite a bit of it. We'll narrate other parts of it. But we need to be able to get the point of the passage, which doesn't come all the way until the beginning of chapter 45. So we're going to take it all together and trust that God will do much good to us through it. And so to get us going, let me read the first 17 verses of chapter 42, where Joseph meets his brothers for the first time in so many years and kicks off all of the events that are soon to come. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And I said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over all the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, No, my Lord, we are servants who have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us this morning as we study your word, that we would see the life that it contains. We rejoice that you give us life according to your word. So give us the spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this text, to open our hearts, that we might respond with faithfulness and meekness. Open my mouth to preach as you say I must, that we all might collectively hear Christ and see him and look on him and live. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in a home that I imagine was maybe somewhat similar to many of yours. It was full of bookshelves that were full of books. 
And so I have these somewhat vivid recollections of staring at those books over the years, pulling them off the shelf and passing many hours, particularly in the summer, reading these books that were nearby. And you know, I can recall the various collections that used to mark parts of the house. There was uh, one section of the, the bookshelves that had this massive brown encyclopedia set, you know, back when people still used to have such things in their homes. And uh, one part of another room had these big green volumes that had all of Sherlock Holmes' short stories. There were various collected works of theologians in the Puritan Protestant tradition that were also around in the downstairs room. But upstairs in one of the homes in particular, there was a, a bookshelf that had lots of books that occupied most of my time. And it was this set called the Great American Illustrated Classics Series which are these abridgments for young children, uh, abridgments of some of the greatest stories ever written, many of them in English, and they're interspersed with illustrations to try to help you kind of capture the scene of the story. And it was through that volume, or those volumes, that I, I first met characters like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, Sherlock Holmes himself, great stories like Treasure Island. But perhaps the one volume that I took down most often uh, was called The Count of Monte Cristo. And if you've ever read that story and have heard about it, or perhaps seen a movie about it, you might know that it focuses on a man named Edmund Dantes. He's wrongly accused of treason. He goes to prison. Eventually, he escapes prison and rises to fortune and power. And in time, he meets the men that wronged him. And through various schemes of concealment, and Revelation, he enacts his revenge on these people. And if you know the story of Joseph that we're going to look at today in Genesis, you might notice some striking parallels that the Count of Monte Cristo has to this biblical story. Because we come to a man named Joseph who's also wrongly accused of a crime, thrown into prison, made to wait many years before he gets out. When he gets out, he rises to fame, he rises to fortune, he rises to power, and eventually he meets the men who wronged him, the men that were his brothers and are his brothers. But of course, in, in this reunion, which is a 22-year reunion, revenge isn't what marks it. It's reconciliation with these ones who wronged him so many years before. And so it isn't until all the way into chapter 45 that you get the point of what is this single narrative that comes in two acts. Each act is really a journey of the brothers down to Egypt and back to Canaan. And I'll give you a spoiler of sorts to kind of whet your appetite for where we're going. The simple point of this amazing story is that God sends a Savior to preserve his people. But along the way, how that actually comes to pass is altogether astonishing and shocking. And we're going to see it in various texts among these chapters where the brothers particularly wonder aloud to each other, what is it that God is doing in this whole situation? That, of course, is cued up by Joseph's ruse to put his brothers through something of a ringer. And maybe you know that God's providence is often one that is subtle, Years might pass like they do in Joseph's life. Decades might pass like they do in Joseph's life. Where so often you can't see God doing anything particular. You wonder, is, is God actually forgetting about me? What, what is he doing with this, that, or the other that is happening? 
But eventually a time comes, maybe years in the future, decades in the future, where God's power and plan is so revealed that you now suddenly realize it's like the curtain is pulled back from your spiritual eyes and you see, oh, that is why this happened. That is why I had to go through that event. That is why, this is why, such suffering and sorrow were necessary to bring this to pass. And so it's one of the clearest stories in all the Old Testament of a great promise that comes to us in the book of Romans, that God works all things together for good, for those that have been called according to his purpose. And you might be in here this morning and wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And what I want you to know this morning is that that promise can be yours today if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, that no matter your hardship, no matter your sorrow, no matter your hurt, no matter your suffering, God will work everything together for your good if he's called you in Jesus Christ, something we see in the life of this covenant family in the book of Genesis. So I've got three simple words to guide our way through what are four chapters. First, confrontation. We see that in the first portion of chapter 42, Joseph's confrontation with his brothers, which we just read a second ago. And then the bulk of the text is about Joseph's evaluation, halfway through chapter 42 all the way through chapter 44. And then chapter 45 is about Joseph's revelation as he shows himself to his brothers. So the confrontation begins in chapter 42, but just a quick word about where we left off last week. Joseph has risen to power. He's the ruler in all of Egypt. And he went in a matter of hours from being a prisoner to a prime minister. And this happened because he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And he interpreted them rightly, saying, seven years of fullness are going to get swallowed up by seven years of famine. (coughs) Excuse me. And what you need to do, Pharaoh, is appoint a prime minister. uh, Someone who's going to oversee this great grain gathering project. And appoint him to store up all this food so when the famine comes, everyone's going to be okay and provided for. Well, Pharaoh says, hey, I know the, the, the right guy, uh, the one in, in whom there's more discernment and wisdom than anyone in all of Egypt, and it's you, Joseph. So by the end of the chapter, Joseph is what would be called, according to the technical title of the time, he's the grand vizier of all of Egypt, overseeing everything that's going on in the country, and famine comes as he said it would. Look at verse 57, the very final verse of chapter 41. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So it's not just in Egypt. People need food. It's everywhere. Which then as we turn to Joseph's confrontation in chapter 42, we see that the famine was in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob and his family, they need some food. And notice what he tells his sons in verse 1. Why do you look at one another? You know, it's like old father Jacob saying, sons, Stop staring at each other, thinking that such sight is going to produce food. You know, go down to Egypt. We've heard there's food in Egypt. Go buy some so we don't die of starvation. Now, kids, if you walked from Canaan all the way down to Egypt, that's a walk of about 200 miles, which in our great state of Texas, that'd be like walking from downtown Dallas to the state capital in Austin. And the brothers quickly get things ready, and they're going to make that 200-mile march south. But one of the brothers doesn't go. And it's Benjamin. Notice why. Verse 4 tells us that Jacob feared that harm might happen to Benjamin. So students, remember, what's so special about Benjamin? Why is Jacob keeping Benjamin back? Because Jacob thinks that Benjamin is the only remaining son of his beloved wife, Rachel. Because, of course, Jacob thinks that his beloved firstborn son of Rachel, Joseph, is dead. So Benjamin is held back. 
The other ten brothers on their way down to Egypt. They eventually come to the governor's house. The governor's palace, which is Joseph's place. Joseph is ruling over all the land. And you'll see what they do in verse 6. At the end, they came and bowed themselves before Joseph with their faces to the ground. And it's altogether ironic. It's a fulfillment of prophecy and even a dream. You remember that Joseph received in chapter 37. He told his brothers, hey, I had this great dream. All of you bowed down to me. And they said, I don't like that dream. So much so that by the end of that chapter, they're getting ready to kill Joseph. They eventually sell him into slavery. But here it comes to fruition, doesn't it? As they bow before this man they don't know. They don't recognize, if you notice through the next few verses, it's clear. Joseph recognizes them immediately. They have no clue who they're talking to, which makes sense in many ways. By this point, Joseph would have been in Egypt longer than he had lived in Canaan. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. For all intents and purposes, he is an Egyptian. And they don't realize it. And he uses it to his advantage. Because you see, the text tells us he spoke roughly with them. Where do you come from? Well, we're from the land of Canaan. We need some food, master, governor of Egypt. Well, he says, no, I don't think so. I think you're spies from the north. Now, that sound might, might may sound a bit odd to you, but it was normal actually at this time in Egyptian power that people would come from the northern kind of more unguarded frontier of Egypt down into the land to spy it out to see how they could invade. So it's not terribly unusual. He says, no, I actually think you're spies. They say, no, 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 we're we're brothers. We all have one father. And actually, there's 11 of us. Well, there were 12 of us, one of whom is no longer here, but one is kept back with our father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan. And so what Joseph decides to do, you'll notice in verse 15 and 16, is put them to the test. Twice, he says, using this word test, by this you shall be tested By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. That's quite interesting, isn't it? You have these men coming before Joseph, who he quickly realizes are his brothers. They're pleading for his grace, for his pardon, for his mercy. No, we can never be spies. Because if you know the brothers in previous chapters, here's what they could have said to Joseph. Yeah, we're murderers. We're adulterers. We're kidnappers. We're perpetual liars. But we certainly couldn't be spies. And Joseph seems to know something about his brother's previous character, doesn't he? I'm going to test you out. So his confrontation leads to his evaluation of his brother's. Now, some of you might remember back to days when you took standardized tests. Kids, students, you might have recently had to take a standardized test in previous months. Or you might be thinking about taking a standardized test in months to come. And I had friends in school years gone past that were kind of the random sort of people that loved the standardized tests. You know, they almost got giddy at the prospect of sitting down at the desk to take one of these tests. Or there were, you know, others who were full of anxiety. They couldn't sleep the night before because they wondered if... You know, their procrastination and preparation was going to meet the test the next day. Or Most of my friends, frankly, were those that just didn't care. You know? they, they came to the day of the test. They sat in their seat and went, let's just see how this goes. But a standardized test is meant to do what? See what's there. And Joseph now gives him something of a standardized spiritual test to his brothers to see what's there. Because as the 
chapter's developed now. Many people think that what Joseph is doing is being little more than just kind of vindictive to his brothers as he puts them through this kind of incredible ruse. But what you need to notice, because we're not going to be able to read every verse, is through the passage, he's often found like overwhelmed in emotion. He's got to pull himself away from everyone's sight because he's so full of tears. So he's not being full of vindictive desire to put his brothers through the test. He genuinely needs to figure out who he's dealing with. Because 22 years, at least 20, probably 22 years have passed since he last saw them. And think of everything he doesn't know. Benjamin isn't with him. Maybe they killed Benjamin too. They could have easily dispatched of him like they did me. You know, they say that Father Jacob is back living in the land of Canaan, but I don't really know that. Maybe they got rid of him and assumed all of the family inheritance and wealth to themselves. So he's got to figure out what these brothers are like. So he puts them through the test, verse 15 and 16, saying, here's test number one. Send one of you back to Canaan. We'll leave the rest here, basically in jail. And then he can bring the younger brother back to Egypt and it'll prove that you're not spies. Well, but you'll notice the text really moves quickly, but nobody stands up and says, okay, I'll be the one that goes back. Or you don't have nine that volunteer. Yeah, we're going to be the ones that stay in prison. So Joseph throws them all in prison. You notice the end of verse 17. For three days, they experience what Joseph knew for 13 years chains and bonds three days go by joseph lets them out and basically releases or i'm sorry reverses that first test so instead of sending one he decides to keep one so which one of you wants to stay so i'll send the rest of you nine back to get your brother and bring him to me to prove that you're not spies and no one steps forward i'll stay here to wait for benjamin to come back so you'll see what joseph does in verse 24 he turned to them this is after weeping and he spoke to them and said, or I'm sorry, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, why do you think he took Simeon? Was it just kind of a random selection of a brother that he was just going to throw into jail? It would have been a little bit more expected at the time to pick the oldest brother, the firstborn of the family, whose name was, kids you might remember, Reuben. But Simeon's the second. So why Simeon, not Reuben? Well, it's because of what caused Joseph to weep. Notice what they're talking about in his presence because they don't realize that he understands their language. Verse 21 and 22, just before he put Simeon in jail, the brothers are before Joseph saying, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And this is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and saying, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. It's the first time in this text, first of many, where the brothers are saying, the Lord is doing something. Something is happening. We're not sure exactly what's going on. But Simeon stays in jail. Off the brothers go back to Canaan. Joseph loads them all up with grain. He actually puts their money back in the sacks as well, which the brothers soon discover. Notice verse 28. One of the brothers discovered the money and says, My money has been put back in my sack. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, What is this that God has done to us? Now, I think you want to read into that an incredible amount of fear. Because they're leaving the land, at least as they think, 
as expected, suspected spies. And here they are now with money in their bags. So now, likely, the rulers in Egypt will think they're thieves as well. So we would often think that they might just turn around, go right back to Egypt, say, hey, here's the money back. Somehow it managed its way into our bags. We don't want to think that we're spies and thieves. So here's the money back. Let's get back, get the brother, and then we'll come back and prove that we're not spies. Well, they just go all the way back to Canaan. They tell Jacob all of these incredible events that happened. Even if you notice, Jacob's response to them is quite obstinate, isn't it? No, I will not send Benjamin back. Benjamin is more important to me, I think is what you need to see, than Simeon. Reuben says, well, here's the deal. Let me put me as a pledge of sorts. Actually, let me put my two sons as a pledge to you. Your two grandsons. If, if we take Benjamin and he doesn't come back, you can kill my two grandsons. Or sorry, your two grandsons and my two sons. But you see, Jacob is so resolute that Benjamin must not go. Look at verse 38. Benjamin shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. Imagine hearing that as the other brothers. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So Joseph's frankly cherished sin of favoritism and partiality still rears its head some 20 years on since we last saw it in the life of Jacob as he related to Joseph. Uh, many of you know how you can walk with Christ for decades, perhaps north of 20 years, and you're still struggling with that same old sin, a sin you you don't want to be struggling with, a sin you know you shouldn't be struggling with, but a sin that you can't seem to put to death. Here is Jacob saying, nope, leave Simeon to rot in jail. I love Benjamin more. And even Jacob in his suffering, he can't seem to see rationality, can he? It should be pretty simple, the logic behind this. But such as suffering and sorrow that sometimes the one who is suffering and sorrowful can't just think reasonably. That's why whenever you're ministering to someone who's dealt with sorrow and suffering for so long, you have to have such patience, such wisdom, because that hurt almost makes them blind to just see ordinary common sins. And that's normal. It's happening here with, with Jacob. Well, as you turn the page into chapter 43... We don't know how much time passes by. Enough time passes by that the pantry is once again empty. They need food. Dad, we need to go back to Egypt, but we've got to take Benjamin with us. Jacob continues to say, nope, won't have it. Judah steps forward. Notice verse 9. He becomes the leader of the clan of sorts in this moment. He says, I will be a pledge of this safety, Benjamin's safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had to not delayed, we would have returned twice already. And I don't think it's because Judah had great persuasive reasoning that Jacob finally relents and sends Benjamin. Hunger can do a lot to a person. So off goes Benjamin. You'll see in verse 11 and 12, lots of gifts Double the portion of money go as well. A benediction follows in verse 14. As Jacob says, May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother. He can't even call him Simeon. And Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It is what it is. If it happens, it happens. So the brothers make the 200-mile march south back to Egypt. They arrive and are quickly summoned into Joseph's home. And they think trouble awaits. They actually think an assault is about ready to happen. Look at verse 18. 
They're afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Harm is on the way. But the first of many surprises in this chapter comes in verse 23. Joseph shows up and actually doesn't harm them or assault them. He gives them his own benediction of sorts. Notice what he says in verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And you almost think, don't you? The brothers are standing next to each other and they start glancing around. Wait, God put the money in our sacks? What is God doing? Well, the confusion only increases as Joseph invites them to lunch, a noon meal. They wash, they clothe, they get ready. They come in, they're seated, according to birth order. They look and think as they ought to look and think, how does he know that's the birth order? Not just that is surprising, it's that Benjamin, the last born, he gets five times the normal amount of food. The customs of the time, believe it or not, actually would have been would have been that it would have been normal for the oldest, Reuben, to have double portion of the food compared to the rest, but it's the last born, Benjamin, that gets quintuple portion as all the rest. And so look at verse 33. The men looked at one another in amazement. Again, they're thinking, what is going on here? And I wonder when was the last time that you perhaps saw God's providence in your own life and you saw his hand move in mysterious ways, in such amazing ways that you think, what is happening? You know, I used to read these Sherlock Holmes novels all the time, and one of the favorite lines that Sherlock would often say is when he discovered this case, he would say, the game is afoot. I hope you know in your own life, and you've seen it happen, sometimes you almost want to cry out, you make a new discovery spiritually, you say, God is afoot. He's doing something. I have no idea what it is, but he's doing something. We'll see at the end of chapter 43, great merriment ensues as they enjoy the meal and as they drink, eat, and are merry. And then the true final exam comes in chapter 44. We don't know how soon after. Maybe it was the next day. Maybe it was only a couple days later. Once again, Joseph gives them the grain. Once again, Joseph puts their money back in their sacks. But this time, he takes a silver cup. A silver cup that we put in all the kids' bags that maybe you received that you heard bouncing around the room this morning, right? A silver cup. And he says to his steward, put it in Benjamin's sack. And here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 4 and 5. Follow after them, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? It is not from this that my Lord drinks, and it is not by this that he practices divination, you have done evil in doing this. Now, I don't think the point is for us to debate whether or not Joseph actually was some sort of a magician in the land of Egypt. The point is this is the final test. It's only a few donkeys' feet when they get outside of the city that the captain of the guard overtakes them. He repeats all of this. How could you do this against my master? Didn't you know that he would know you had taken a silver cup? And of course, Joseph's brothers, they begin to protest. And they actually make a vow of sorts that sounds like a family vow. A kids, you might think all the way back to Genesis 31. Joseph had left his father-in-law Laban's house. 
And Laban caught up to him. And Laban said what? Why'd you steal my family idols? You know, these household gods. Who's got them? And you remember what Jacob said? Search. We don't have them. If anybody has them, we'll kill them. Well, now his sons say, we don't have the cup. Search. Look around. Verse 9. Whichever your servants is found with it shall die. Now we know where it is. In Benjamin's cup. They don't know that the cup is in Benjamin's sack. And we shall also be your servants. So with this vow, Jacob would lose not only Benjamin, but all his sons. So the captain of the guard begins to look. Text tells us he starts with the oldest. He starts with Reuben. Then he goes to Simeon. Then he goes to Levi, opening up the sacks. Nothing, 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 until he gets to Benjamin. Then he opens it up, and what's in there but the silver cup. And surely the brothers now, almost dejected, think, this is exactly what was not supposed to happen. What do we do now? They march back to Joseph's house. He blusters about, as he's been doing in the passage, thundering around. And then who steps forward to plead for Benjamin but Judah? Now, you got to remember who Judah was in chapter 38. Okay, he's the fourth-born son. Chapter 38, he's nothing more than a rank idolater, duped and deceived to sleep with his daughter-in-law. The last person you would ever expect will be the leader of this family. But such is God's grace in his sovereign mercy. He's chosen Judah to be the clan of great inheritance and blessing. So Judah steps up. He's going to make this impassioned plea. Just glance down. Verse 18 through 34, chapter 44. This long speech of Judah begins in this way. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. And you can kind of summarize his point. He says, our dad's back in Canaan. He lost a beloved son so many years ago and almost destroyed him. You can't take Benjamin. It will destroy him certainly now. And so his conclusion is the offer of substitution. Look at verse 33 of chapter 44. Judah says, now therefore, please let your servant remain. That's me. Judah, remain instead of Benjamin as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. And it seems as though in Joseph's mind, it's precisely with this offer of substitution that the brothers have passed his examination. That they've passed all his tests. They've revealed their true character in a way that encourages him now in chapter 45 to bring about his revelation. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a high school reunion I haven't ever been, don't plan to ever go, but I hear of people who do, and they come back with these stories, don't they, of, I can't believe I saw so-and-so, you'll never believe what they're doing, and they're, you know, 25 years on from high school, you never believe what they look like now, can you believe that this person and this person are now married, it's just all of this shock and awe, but this 22-year reunion between Joseph and his brothers surely surpasses that kind of shock and awe, doesn't it? Look at what verse 1 through 3 tell us. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so much so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So children, you want to think about Joseph wailing so loud that someone would hear it a few homes away. Such is his joy at this moment. And look what he says in verse 3. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And you'd be dismayed too, wouldn't you? Again, brothers kind of standing in line before this governor looking at each other. Who did he just say he is? How did he know that we had a brother named Joseph? Wait, you're who? Dismayed is this Hebrew word for panic-stricken. It really means something more like terrified. Uh, We might use in our language more today that they were thunderstruck at this revelation. And it makes sense, right? I haven't seen this guy in 22 years. And he's the ruler of Egypt, this dreamer that we sold into slavery. How did this happen? Well, we'll come back to verses 4 through 11 in a few minutes. But the rest of the chapter is pretty simple. Pharaoh finds out. Joseph's family is here. Joseph's family is in need. So Pharaoh says, take the royal caravan all the way up to Canaan. Bring the family back. Bring them into the land of Goshen. I'll provide for them. Look at verse 20. Pharaoh says, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. God's preservation of his people and provision for his people does come through surprising individuals, doesn't it? Surely you would never have expected that the king, the pagan king of the known world at this time would be the one that provides for the covenant family. Joseph seems to still know something true about his brother's spiritual state because he lets him go and commands them one simple thing, this marching order along the way. Look at the end of verse 24. He says, do not quarrel along the way. They get back home. And they tell Jacob, dad, you're never going to believe who's alive in Egypt. Joseph. Not just that. He's the ruler in all of Egypt. And you can sympathize with Jacob, right? Of course not. Joseph alive, ruler in all of Egypt. But there's a significant word that is used in the text. Look at what we're told at the end of verse 26. Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And when you first read that verse, if you're anything like me, you might think it's like a spiritual heart attack that he's just experienced of joy. But the word is actually more about apathy, indifference. It seems as though Jacob, for the previous two decades, has been so full of sorrow over Joseph's life that he's convinced that he'll never know joy ever again. So of course Joseph's not alive. Why would God ever do anything good for me now? And maybe some of you know that kind of suffering, that kind of temptation of Satan, that the sorrow overwhelms the souls to such a degree you look out on the future and say, I don't really care what happens anymore. No good's ever going to come of it. Just let it be what it is. But revival comes to his heart. They convince him of everything that had happened. Look at the end of verse 27 into 28. The spirit of Jacob revived and he said, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go down to see him before I die. I think the only writing class I took in college was about creative writing. I'm not very good at creative writing, so I got lots of bad grades in this class. And 
one short story I wrote, I'll never forget this. The teacher came to me afterwards after marking up the paper all red. And she said, you know, you're trying to tell a good story, but it has no point whatsoever. And I kind of thought to myself, well, of course, that's a bad story then if it has no point. And, you know, you get to these texts in Scripture that are so engrossing. I mean, this is one of the most famous stories in all the Old Testament. Joseph reconciling with his brothers. And you get to this point, you're like, what's the point of it all? Well, it's quite clear, isn't it? Look at verse 4 through 7. See if you see the point in God's providence in all of these events. Joseph says to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither harvest nor plowing. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So students, do you see the point of this long story? Basically twice repeated almost identically. God sent me here to preserve you. That's the good news, the point of the passage. God has sent a Savior to preserve his people. And as we begin to close, I want you to notice this twice-repeated command that Joseph gives to his brothers. Verses 4 and 9, he says, Come near to me. Come to me. So first of all, as we begin to finish, come to God's Savior, hopefully. Come to God's Savior, hopefully. Look again at verse 4 and 5. He says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold in to Egypt. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. It's a language, if you know the story of Genesis really well, that's quite famous. We're getting ready to run into chapter 50. God sent me. Not you. Or in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph will say to these same brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So you can come to God's Savior, hopefully, because God is orchestrating all things, even the sinful decisions, even the wicked actions of these brothers to bring about his sovereign purpose, to bring his promises to pass in the life of Jacob's family. Not just that, of course, we see forgiveness, we see reconciliation, we see mercy that knows no limit, such as this Savior, Joseph. And surely it points us to a greater Savior, the Savior who is to come, Jesus Christ, a Savior who likewise says, come to me. Come hopefully, knowing that no matter what you have done in your life, God will work it all together for good because he's called you in this Savior, Jesus Christ. Come to him hopefully, knowing that his mercy has eternal merit, everlasting value, of forgiveness and reconciliation to wipe away with a glance all the wrongs you've committed against him. You come to him hopefully, but also secondly, come to God's Savior urgently. Look at verse 9 through 11. He says, go back home to Father Jacob and say, hurry up. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you. Some of you might be like Jacob when he hears this news. No, 
I think I'd rather stay in the land of famine. I think I'd rather stay in this wilderness. I'm, I'm comfortable here. Yeah, I may want, but at least this is just kind of home to me. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, hurry up. Don't tarry. Come to me because I've prepared a place for you. I've gone to build a house for you. Joseph says, come, hurry up. We got land in Goshen that's going to provide everything for you. Jesus Christ says, come, hurry. Don't tarry. I've prepared a place for you in my Father's kingdom. And it's there that I will provide everything that you need. So you must come then to God's Savior. And come hopefully. Come urgently. Because just as he sent to Joseph ahead to be the salvation and preservation of this covenant family, he has sent Jesus ahead to be the Savior that preserves God's people and brings all of his promises to pass. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your tender mercy that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would help us to have hope in our Savior. To not come slowly, but to come with eagerness, knowing that he alone can provide everything we need. Father, help us to see that in the midst of whatever hardship we are in, difficulty that we face, that you're providentially moving and working through all things to bring about your good purposes in our life through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, let us